Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well, because after nine weeks of working our way through chapter one in the Gospel of Mark, today we will be turning our attention to Mark chapter two and looking specifically this morning at verses one through twelve, or at one of Jesus' more well-known healings, that of when Jesus healed the paralytic. And Jesus Christ has been doing that a lot lately in our text, has he not, church? That of healing people. For really, ever since he came into Capernaum to begin his Galilean ministry, he, Jesus Christ, has been healing people, performing miracles, and casting out demons left and right. And it started a couple weeks back in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus Christ, after preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, healed a man with an unclean spirit in verse 26, followed by Jesus Christ then, healing Simon's mother-in-law who was lying ill with a fever in verse 31. And then as we saw in verse 34, Jesus healed many more who were sick and casted out many demons. And then finally, as we closed chapter 1 last week, we saw Jesus Christ instantly and completely heal a man with leprosy by doing, really, the unthinkable church, by touching this unclean, defiled, and leprous-covered man. And I say that because despite touching this unclean, defiled, and leprous-covered man, Jesus Christ in that moment, he himself did not become unclean, but instead as Jesus Christ touched him, the unclean man, here in verse 42, immediately then became clean. And thus Jesus' fame then, well, it just absolutely takes off in large part because the leper who Jesus Christ sternly charged to tell no one about this healing, instead just let his lips run loose. And verse 45 began talking freely about it. So much so that Jesus Christ then was forced to retreat away from the towns of Galilee and go instead out to the desolate places so everyone now, since everyone now, wanted to see him. And thus, we left chapter 1 last week knowing quite well, church, that this Jesus Christ was indeed a miracle worker who could no doubt heal diseases, cleanse lepers, cure the sick, and cast out demons. However, now, church, the author of this gospel, John Mark, he is about to transition us as readers into seeing that not only could Jesus Christ heal the world physically of sickness and weakness and firmities and disease, but even more than that, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, that he could also heal people spiritually. Or to put it another way, that he could also forgive sinners of their very sins. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ is able to forgive sinners of their sins because Jesus Christ is truly God. Jesus Christ is able to forgive sinners of their sins because Jesus Christ is truly God. So at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 2 as we will be looking at the entire first section of chapter 2 this morning, that being verses 1 through 12. 
And if you are joining us today and do not own a Bible, please know that there are tons of Bibles located in this sanctuary. Therefore, if you do not own a Bible, please feel free to grab a Bible out of any of the chairs in front of you this morning and to turn that Bible to page 837 and to join us as we hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, church, our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we marvel at your word, at you, at your Son, and your Spirit this morning, claiming we have never seen anything like this. Father, you are holy. You are completely pure. You are other than us. For we are sinners, and because of that, and because of your love for us, you had to send an even greater Savior. And that Savior, that one who forgives us of our sins, his name is Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. And thus, because he is truly God, never fell victim to sin, he thus has authority to forgive sinners of their sins. Lord, let that be the things that we cling to throughout the entirety of our lives, two things that never cease to leave our minds that we are great sinners, but that Jesus Christ is a greater Savior who has saved us from our sins. Father, I pray that you open this dear flock, their eyes this morning to your word, soften their hearts this morning to receive your word, open their ears this morning to hear the preaching of your word. And Father, I pray for help. Father, please send your Holy Spirit this morning to help my lisping and stammering tongue to be able to preach clearly and accurately the beauty of your text, of your infallible word that you have given to mankind. 
I pray that I decrease this morning and that you above all else increase. Lord, let you be glorified through this service today, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Jesus Christ possesses the authority to forgive sinners of their sins. Jesus Christ possesses the authority to forgive sinners of their sins, verses 1 through 5. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So as we see here in verse 1, Jesus Christ, after being forced out into the desolate places because of his ever-growing fame and popularity, at some point then, church, the excitement about Jesus Christ must have died down just a bit so that Jesus Christ then could, verse 1, return to Capernaum, potentially back to the house of Simon and Andrew, or where Jesus stayed when he was in Capernaum back in chapter 1. However, as we see in the text, it doesn't take long for the people of Capernaum to figure out that Jesus Christ, that the miracle worker, that he is now back on the scene. And thus, as we see in verse 2, that on some particular occasion, again, a potentially at the house of Simon and Andrew, many people gathered together to see Jesus Christ. So much so that the house that Jesus Christ was at was packed to the point, church, that people were just spilling out of the house and out the front door. And Jesus Christ on this occasion, well, he was doing what he came into this world to do, that being, verse 2, to preach the word. And thus, can you just imagine for a second, church, what it must have been like to be there and to hear Jesus Christ preach the word, to listen to God in the flesh proclaim to these people that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and to repent and believe the gospel, to literally observe the greatest preacher of all time, heralding the greatest message of all time, that being the good news of the kingdom of God. I mean, that just gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. And yet it was on this particular occasion and during the glorious preaching of Jesus Christ that four men arrive on the scene carrying with them, as verse 3 puts it, a paralytic, a lame man, or a man who was simply unable to get up and to walk to the point that this paralytic man had to be completely transported by his four friends, likely on some kind of stretcher or some kind of a mat. However, when these four men arrive on the scene, no doubt to get their paralytic friend healed by Jesus Christ, it is, Houston, we have a problem. 
Because the house in which Jesus Christ was at, as previously mentioned, it is packed to the brim with people. To the point, church, that there was simply no way that these four men were ever going to be able to wiggle or squeeze or maneuver their way through this dense crowd to get their friend into the presence of Jesus Christ. And thus, these four men, these four rather resourceful men, they come up with an idea. A wonderful idea, for they decide not to wait for the crowd to simply disperse and to run the risk of never getting their friend to Jesus Christ, but instead they decide to take matters into their own hands and to take their paralytic friend up to the roof of the house in which Jesus Christ was in probably by going up a staircase that was located on the outside of the house, kind of like a fire escape that we would see on houses today. Nevertheless, the question is then, church, well, how on earth are these four men then ever going to get their paralytic friend from the roof of the house down to Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question is, quite simply, they were going to go through it, by verse 4, removing the roof, and thus being that the roof here, church, was likely flat, and likely would have just been made up of wooden beams that would have had some kind of branches or long grasses placed over top of them, and then been sealed or covered with some kind of mud, the four men here, they likely then just began breaking through that mud and then pulling up the branches and the long grasses that were laying on top of the wooden beams until they made a hole that was big enough for their friend to fit through, so that they could then, verse 4, just let the bed or the mat down on which the paralytic man lay. So again, keep the context in mind here, church. Jesus Christ here, he is preaching the gospel of God in front of a packed house where there is standing room only, when then out of nowhere there is a ruckus from above and then all of a sudden dirt and debris and grass just start falling on top of Jesus Christ and on the rest of the crowd and then emerging from this cloud of dust from above is a man who is unable to walk, being lowered by his four friends from the roof in into the presence of Jesus Christ, the King. And Jesus Christ, the King here, the greatest preacher of all time who just had his sermon abruptly interrupted by all five of these men and a thick cloud of dust, he doesn't get mad here, church, nor does he lose his cool or get angry or violent or storm off, fuming at the foolishness of these five men for interrupting him, for getting him dirty, and for not showing him the type of respect that he thinks he deserves. But instead, as it says in verse 5, Jesus Christ, he saw their faith. Meaning, to paraphrase scholar James Edwards here, that although we do not know the exact beliefs of these five men or the exact theology of these five men, what we do know is that they possessed a faith that was active, a faith that was tenacious, and a faith that was persevering, whereby they were trusting that this Jesus Christ was absolutely sufficient for their deepest and most heartfelt needs. 
However, even more than that, church, I am also convinced here that this paralytic man came to Jesus Christ on this day convicted of his sins, burdened by his sins, repentant of his sins, and trusting that this man named Jesus Christ could not only heal him physically, but that he could also heal him spiritually. Because Jesus Christ ultimately says to him in verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. For you see, church, our God, he sees not as man sees. For man, we can only see the outward appearance, but our God, church, he can see the heart. Therefore, although Jesus Christ knew that this man was in a bad way physically, he also knew that even more troubling than that was that this man was guilty of his sin, which meant he was going to be condemned to hell forever outside of the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And thus, Jesus Christ unapologetically here addresses this man's greatest need first, that being the forgiveness of his sins. George Redford, an old English minister, he wrote back in 1855 that even during the last months of his life here on earth, John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, that he continued to hold firmly to the truths that he had preached throughout the entirety of his life. So much so that when he was barely able to speak, he was still able to mutter the words that although my memory is nearly gone, I can still certainly remember two things, those being that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a greater Savior. And thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, let us never, ever, ever forget that although we are great sinners, that we have a far greater Savior. And that Savior Christian, it is not your pastor, nor is it your elders, nor is it the Pope, your church, or any other New Agey meditation or mindfulness practices out there today where you can forgive yourself and still be exactly who your flesh desires you to be. Because it is only through the shedding of blood, church, that we can have the forgiveness of sins, Hebrews chapter Chapter 9. And thus, since only Jesus Christ willingly poured his blood out for us and for many for the forgiveness of sins, we can only then, Christian, be forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our sins, and receive eternal redemption through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Which is why then, church, Jesus Christ can genuinely, absolutely, and honestly tell any sinner ever, son, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus Christ has the authority, church, to forgive sinners of their very sins. Which leads us quite well into point number two this morning, church, which is this. You can confidently turn to Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins because Jesus Christ is truly God. You can confidently turn to Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, because Jesus Christ is truly God. Verses 6 through 12. Now some of, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus 
questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So among the people who were in attendance at this particular event and on this particular day were none other than that of the scribes or some of the religious leaders and teachers of the day or the ones who Mark mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 22, when he wrote that Jesus Christ taught not as their scribes, but as one who had authority. And the scribes here, church, in hearing Jesus Christ say in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven, they instantly then begin to take issue with this, or this idea that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sinners of their sins. And thus the scribes here, they begin thinking amongst themselves in verse 7, for why does this man speak like that? For he is blaspheming, for who can forgive sins but God alone? And to be honest, church, they were correct in their belief that only God can remove our sins as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, and not remember our sins, Isaiah 43, and blot out our sins, Isaiah 44, and ultimately forgive us of our sins, 1 John chapter 1. However, what they ultimately failed to realize here, church, was that Jesus Christ is truly God. And thus Jesus Christ uh, here, a.k.a. God in the flesh, perceiving in his spirit that these scribes were questioning him and his authority to forgive sinners of their sins, he says to them in verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then in verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And what Jesus Christ was doing here, church, was in essence saying to the scribes, in order to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive this paralytic man of his sins, something that you can't tangibly see take place, then why don't I say to this paralytic man, rise, take up your bed and walk, so that you can see tangibly that I not only have the authority to heal this man physically, but that I also then must have the authority to be able to heal this man spiritually or as Mark Strauss puts it, whereas neither options are easier here, as both are impossible for man and only possible for God, Jesus' question here takes the form of a rabbinic-style, lesser-to-greater argument, whereas if someone could do the harder, in this case physically heal someone, then that would prove that the easier here, declaring the forgiveness of sins, would have also been accomplished as well. And thus, in order to prove to these 
doubting and questioning scribes that he, Jesus Christ, verse 10, was the Son of God and had the authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus Christ then says to the paralytic in verse 11, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately then, this paralytic man, verse 12, he picks up his bed and he goes out right before them all. For Jesus Christ literally just calls his shot right in front of the scribes here, saying to them, in essence, I have the authority to forgive sin. And if you want me to prove it and validate it and confirm it and not just say it, then watch me instantly heal this paralytic man physically, to which immediately then this paralytic, this lame man, this man who couldn't even walk and who literally had to show up today in our text on a stretcher in order to get anywhere, immediately then, church, this man, he gets up and he walks. And thus Jesus Christ forces the scribes here to observe and to see and to grasp that he can do the very thing that they say only God can do, that being to forgive sinners of their very sins. Which means, church, that Jesus Christ then is indeed God, one substance and equal with God, and is absolutely nothing less than that. Nevertheless, do you believe exactly that this morning, church? That this Jesus Christ is truly God? Or are you instead this morning acting just like the scribes in the text, or acting just like the secular intellectuals of our day by questioning and critiquing and believing that this man named Jesus Christ, although impressive, is not truly God? For as D.L. Moody wrote, some people who do not affirm Christ's deity will still say that he was the best man to have ever lived. However, if he were not God, for that very reason, he ought to not be considered a good man, since he laid claim to an honor and a dignity in which these people claim he had no right, which would rank him as a deceiver. Or others say that Jesus Christ thought he was God, but that he was deceived, as if Jesus Christ was carried away by delusion and deception and simply thought that he was more than he was. And I could not conceive a lower idea of Jesus Christ than that, for that would not only make Jesus out to be an imposter, but it would also display that he was out of his mind and that he did not know who he was or where he came from. And thus, if Jesus Christ was not who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world, and if he did not come from heaven, he was then a gross deceiver. However, how can anyone read the life of Jesus Christ and make him out to be a deceiver? For a man generally has some great kind of motive for being an imposter. And what was Christ's motive? For he knew the course that he was taking would lead him to the cross and that many of his followers would be called upon to lay down their lives for his sake as well. So if a man is an imposter, he has a motive for his hypocrisy. But what was Christ's objective? The record shows that he went about doing good and thus that is not the work of any imposter. And thus do not allow yourself 
brother Christian, sister Christian, to fall into the trap of believing this nonsense that is out there today, that Jesus Christ was just some high-minded teacher, or some moral exemplar, or some virtuous leader, disease healer, crowd pleaser, who only wanted to liberate a certain kind of people with a certain color of skin. Because as C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus Christ, he does not give us that option, church, but instead the only option that Jesus Christ gives us, and that his life gives us, the cross gives us, his resurrection gives us, his ascension gives us, and the infallible word of God gives us is that Jesus Christ is truly God, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the image of the invisible God, and the exact imprint of the nature of God, and thus we must believe that church, confess that church, and forevermore hold on to that church church, because to see Jesus Christ as anything other than that church is to get Jesus Christ wrong. It is to get the gospel wrong, and it is to remain dead in your sin and to be condemned to hell forever, because your Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who forgives you of your sins, make no mistake about it, church, was, is, and forevermore will be truly God. And thus, as we close this morning, church, I'll begin by encouraging the non-Christian who was here first to simply run to Jesus Christ, to see Jesus Christ this morning, non-Christian, for who he is, that being God in the flesh, to be in all of his authority, to forgive you of your very sins, and to then place your trust in him, to cleanse you of your sins, and to reconcile you back to God forever. And I can say that so confidently to you this morning, non-Christian, because Jesus Christ, God himself, he willingly came into this world, non-Christian, as truly God and as truly man in order to live for us here on earth the life that we could never live. That being a holy and sinless and righteous life whereby he, Jesus Christ, kept perfectly and completely the law of God and he did it, non-Christian, for the children of God. And not only that, non-Christian, but Jesus Christ then, he also paid for us the debt that we could never pay. Meaning, non-Christian, Jesus Christ also willingly took our sins upon himself and bore the wrath that we as sinners deserve for our sins, even though he himself never sinned. And he bore that wrath, non-Christian, by being crucified on a cross at Calvary and by dying a sinner's death in our place and as our very substitute. However, non-Christian, and here is the absolutely mind-blowing part of all of this, being that Jesus Christ never sinned and being that God the Father accepted Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sins, as the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. Three days later, non-Christian, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and he destroyed eternal death once and for all and 
now offers instead eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sins. Let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins, as the only one who paid the price for your sin and died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever because Jesus Christ is not an imposter non-Christian, nor is he a swindler or deceiver or trickster or fraud, but instead Jesus Christ, he is truly God. Therefore, let today be the day non-Christian. I plead with you that you turn from your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And I can promise you, Jesus Christ, he will cleanse you, he will redeem you, and he will give you the gift of eternal life, and he can do that for you, non-Christian, right here today, because Jesus Christ is truly God. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, I reckon that there are numerous ways in which we could conclude our sermon this morning. However, I thought the most applicable way to conclude this morning was simply by considering the paralytic for a second. The man church who physically could not walk, the man church who tasted struggle each and every day, the man church who at this particular time in the text was dealing with significant hardship in his life. And I want to end by considering the paralytic here, because as I take a step back and consider our own church body at this current time and during this particular season of life, I know that it has been a wild and rough season for a lot of you. For I know that many of you in recent months have been dealing with the discomfort of job loss, the pain of working through grief, the struggle of navigating sickness, the times of rocky relationship with loved ones, broken down cars, surgeries, trips to the ER, cancer, pneumonia, trauma-inducing events, mandates at work, and oh, so much more. And thus, as we consider the paralytic here for a second, what I want us to remember about him and to never forget about him, church, is that although his story began in the midst of suffering, by the end of his story, the paralytic had his greatest need eternally met and that he had been completely forgiven of his sins. And thus, as J.C. Ryle writes, who can doubt then that by the end of his days that this man would thank God for his paralysis? Because without it, he might have lived and died in ignorance and would have never seen Jesus Christ at all. Without it, he might have just kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never had been brought to Jesus Christ and never heard those blessed words, your sins are forgiven. For that paralysis was indeed a blessing since it was but the beginning of eternal life for his soul. And us, brother Christian, sister Christian, if you are currently going through a season of hardship in your life, then lovingly let me encourage you, Christian, to not waste it. 
but instead to seek the counsel of God in and through it, maybe unlike ever before, in order to see what God is trying to teach you, or how God is trying to refine you, or what changes in your life God is trying to spark within you. Because even in the midst of our pain and hardship and grief, church, our God, He is still present, and He is using those hardships, each and every one of them, to call sinners to himself, as we saw in the case of the paralytic, and to call his children into deeper and greater and even more sweeter communion with him as well. Therefore, practically speaking, if you have unsaved loved ones out there today, church, who are paralyzed by this pandemic, heartbroken over disease, depressed about a life change, grief-stricken over death, then now is the time, Christian, to boldly point them to Jesus Christ because your God, he might be using this exact time, this exact moment, and this exact season of life to call that unsaved sinner to himself. Or furthermore, Christian, maybe you are the one going through it now worried about the bills, upset about the car, heartbroken about a relationship, or depressed about disease. And if that is you this morning, Christian, then consider deeply how God might be using this season of struggle in your life to refine you, to stretch you, to pull you, and to move you in ways that you would never move on your own if these hardships were not currently taking place. Because your God very well, Christian, might be using these current hardships to enhance your righteousness, to produce in you meekness, to strengthen you in faithfulness, to encourage your gentleness, increase your holiness, or to grow you further in Christ-likeness. And thus you have no reason then, Christian, to dread any illness or infirmity, sickness or suffering, disorder or disease. Because if your God can use paralysis, Christian, to bring a sinner into his presence, to forgive him of his sins and to call that sinner to himself, then rest assured, Christian, that he can most certainly then use whatever hardship you are going through in the here and now for your good and for his glory. Therefore, do not waste, Christian, these seasons of hardship that you have been called to walk through. But instead, as your brother in Christ, let me encourage you, Christian, to seek God's counsel through them and to allow your God to use them, to draw you closer to himself, to burn away any sin in your life, and to grow you in Christ-likeness. Because no matter what, man or disease or your job or your work or this world or the government or even the prince of the power of the air might use evil against you, Christian, your God, he can and he will use it for your good. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church family realize that our God is at work in and through every area of our lives. He can use paralysis to bring sinners to himself, cancer to strengthen the faith of his saints, hardship to build up his church, and even that of martyrdom to catapult the gospel to the ends of the earth. Therefore, let us not then, Father, curse you when hardship comes our way, but instead, Father, during those seasons of struggle, 
provide us with the grace we need to learn and to grow and to mature in the ways that you want us to, since you always have our best in mind. For we already know, Father, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world in order to die for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and to give us redemption through his blood. Therefore, no matter what then, Father, we need to face in the here and now. Help us then to keep our eyes focused on you, our minds meditating on you, and our hearts trusting in you, since we know that you will use whatever comes our way to bring us eternally closer to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I understand there might be congregants out there today questioning how can you work all things together for good? But Father, if we understand that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be a Savior for our sins, Lord, you can do anything. For greater love has no one than this, than one give, us, I'll give up his life for sinners. Father, help us this morning to see Jesus Christ as he is, our Savior and truly God. Let that be the foundation of everything we witness and walk through and deal with and grow through in this life. That we have a great Savior in Jesus Christ, and he can save us from our sins because he is truly God. And thus, even though we might have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you, God, can use it to grow us in the likeness of your Son, to refine us, to burn off any dross that we may have clinging to us, any sin we may have clinging to us, to strengthen our faithfulness, to develop our meekness, to grow our holiness until that process is made complete, the day when Christ returns. And we can know you. We can be in your presence forever and ever. Thus, let us cling to those truths this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. we come to the conclusion of our service this morning, church. Let's at this time prepare our hearts and our minds to partake in the Lord's Supper. For the Lord's Supper, church, is a time where we as a church body, we testify our, tra our, 